When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since mirror tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah Uh-huh, uh-huh yeah. Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast I'm your host, Mike Cheatham And this is episode number 43 It is July the 31st, 2021 and the title of the podcast this week is a question that I intend to answer, and that question is, are the Republicans fascist? And I think you know enough from what I've been saying recently to know my answer to that, but uh, we'll get to the details in a bit. First of all, let's go through our agenda. First up, uh, feedback from listeners, and I did get uh, feedback from uh, a listener that hadn't provided feedback before, so um, I think that that's pretty good to go through. Uh, I'll, I will review what that listener had to say. Uh, after that, uh, we'll get to the episode, What's on My Mind, and this week's episode of What's on My Mind is the question, are the Republicans fascists? And we'll go through some information to uh, provide us uh, with enough data to make uh, a determination about that question, and then we'll answer it in the end. After what's on my mind, we'll get to the news. Uh, first up, some just breaking news uh, that I'll go through quickly. Uh, next up after that, we only have a um, short, uh, small number of uh, topics to go through in the news. First up, um, a story about what has been uh, reported as a Republican donor, Ed Buck, being found guilty on all counts as it relates to the murder of a couple of black men. So we'll get into some details on that. Next up, I want to talk about the select committee that was uh, formed to investigate the January 6th uh, attempt to overthrow the government. They held their first meeting, and I want to give some uh, updates on uh, where they're at and how that went. And then uh, I, the next story, which is also the last one, is just a story about Gates, Gomert, and Green, uh, which are three Republican jackasses. Uh, they tried to storm the DOJ, uh, and we'll talk about that and how it went. And I think that even though we will have already answered the question, are the Republicans fascists, uh, this story about Gates, Gomert, and Green will just uh, provide additional evidence to the conclusion that I draw in the segment, What's on My Mind. 
After uh, the news, we'll get to the segment, This Shit is for Us. And this week, what I want to talk about, and I had uh, given a, um, a, a prelude to this last week. So what I want to talk about is identity politics. Actually, I'm going to talk about a number of things, identity politics, cancel culture, and I'm going to wrap that around uh, the topic of systemic or systematic enemy analysis. And so that's what we're going to talk about in the segment, This Shit is for Us. Uh, after that, we'll get to Minute Bible Study with Atheist Mike that might run a little over a minute this time. Well, actually, it has every time, so uh, what am I saying? But anyway, what I want to talk about uh, this week in that segment is uh, religion and slavery. What is the link and what what was the impact? After that, we'll close out the podcast. And this week, I want to close out the podcast uh, kind of giving my take and in contrast to some comments that have been made because uh, Simone Biles uh, pulled out of competition in the in the Tokyo Olympics. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Biles is the greatest athlete ever. And I just want to give her a tribute to, to or put out a tribute on this podcast to her. Uh, I, I believe that she is, she is absolutely great, uh, from multiple dimensions. And I want to talk about that, uh, encounter to some bullshit that has been said about her, uh, in, in the press, uh, this week. All right, so that'll be it for the podcast. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll get the listener feedback. Welcome back. Uh, as I mentioned, a, a, a listener, uh, I believe they've been listening for a while, but this is the first time that they've provided uh, feedback. Um, uh, a listener by the name of uh, Brandis, um, and they wrote in to say that though overall they really love the show, that the podcast episodes are way too long. Uh, they acknowledged that I had already mentioned this myself a number of times, but they wanted to reiterate that point. Uh, and and I guess that just kind of, uh, again, reinforces to me that I need to find a way to shorten the show. Now, Brandeis uh, suggested that I eliminate some of the news, especially stories like the car theft last week and the cross-species rape uh, from last week. Uh, I'm good with eliminating some of the news, and you'll find in this week's uh, segment, based on uh, even just the agenda that I went through, I essentially only have three main stories to go through, which is less than what I typically do. But the reason that I generally try to provide some what I consider to be nonsensical stories uh, that still have some relevance to the black community is because most podcasts like mine are comedy based or or humor based mine is really not uh i i am too serious about uh, the things that i talk about so it makes it difficult for me to find humor in it uh and so i like to uh, find a story or two each week that can break up the serious nature of what we're talking about with some humor um if that is not resonating with listeners, though, then I'll certainly eliminate it. Uh, so um, I'd like to get more feedback on that. 
those types of stories, if you'd like to see uh, less of them, none of them, uh, or the same or more of them. So uh, once I get additional feedback on that, then I will follow the uh, listeners' feedback uh, and we'll either eliminate it or keep it the same or make whatever other changes are recommended. So um, essentially, um, Brandeis also said that they really enjoyed my coverage last week of the Cuban protest uh, and our Cuban protest and found it informative. And I will try to focus more on providing um, uh, the stories like that, where I go through uh, some uh, a story or or uh, uh, an event that is happening and is well known um, in the U.S., but uh, may not have a black or person of color's perspective to it. So I'll try to do more on that. Uh, overall, Brandis, uh, I appreciate your feedback. Um, uh, thanks uh, for providing that. And other listeners, if you have feedback that you'd like to pr- provide, just like uh, Brandis uh, or Brandice, um, if I'm mispronouncing that, I'm, I apologize. But if you have uh, additional feedback that uh, you'd like to provide, uh, please write me again at feedback at rationalblackthought.com. All right, that's it for feedback. So we'll take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment of what's on my mind. Okay, welcome back. So as I had mentioned in the intro, the uh, title of the segment, What's on My Mind This Week, uh, is the question, are the Republicans fascists? Now, I have been saying for quite some time now that the Republican Party is no longer a political party. They have completely given up on policies and platforms and have devolved into an organization whose only mission is to... uh, otherize individuals and to divide the population in an attempt to maintain minority white control over the U.S. Increasingly, their preferred method is to use whatever means are necessary to prevent the wrong, and that's in in uh, scare quotes, uh, people, mostly that is people of color, from voting. And if we do vote, then what they're, uh, they are attempting to do is institutionalize the ability to throw out our votes and to install a Fuhrer, uh, in this case Donald Trump, in place of the people's choice. The de-evolution of the Republican Party has been going on for a number of decades. Uh, so uh, it didn't just start under Trump, though it did accelerate under Trump's leadership. Many people have taken what I said and will continue to take what I have said as hyperbolic, so I want to present what others have said as well in in that they have come to the same conclusion. First up, we have an article from Foreign Policy magazine uh, titled Fascism Starts with Paramilitary Ties to Mainstream Parties, and this was released on uh, March the 10th, 2021. So let me read now from the beginning of the article and then provide some of my commentary. The article states, Donald Trump is out, but his style of politics remain. Even before the U.S. president was elected, observers debated whether his style should be called fascism. After the past year, we argue that it unequivocally should be 
and that the appropriateness of the term lies specifically in the growing union of right, right-wing party politics and paramilitary street violence. Socio- sociologist Michael Mann's definition of fascism is one of the most influential, and it is, quote, the pursuit of a transcendent and cleansing nation-statism through paramilitarianism, end quote. This takes 1930 fascism as its prototype. It is, restrict, it is a restrictive definition, but one that now describes the U.S. situation well. This may seem counterintuitive. Military groups in the United States have historically been anti-government. Recently, this has changed, producing uh, intensifying but often informal relationships between the Republican Party and the increasingly organized constellation of armed groups devoted to violently challenging democratic institutions. While the Capitol insurrection marked a bloody peak in the most recent round of violence, it would be a mistake to think that things can't get worse. And I completely agree with that. Things can get worse, and they will get worse based on what we're seeing now. And so, immediate, and, and from my perspective, immediately after January 6th, uh, many of the Republicans seem uh, to have decided that things had gone too far. If you remember Lindsey Graham saying, that's it, I'm out. And uh, but now he's fully supportive uh, of what's happened, what happened on January 6th and is continuing to promote the big lie that caused the riots in the first place. Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy both said Trump was to blame right after the, the incident happened. But now both are pretending that they never said such a thing. The Republican Party as a whole, even in the face of zero evidence of fraud, are promoting restrictive voting laws in over 47 states, including many that have passed and or attempting to pass measures that would give them the right to overturn a free and fair election. And that is if their guy, in this case, Trump or otherwise, uh, wouldn't, wasn't elected. So. That's what they're attempting to do. Now, the article goes on, and it goes on to say that um, this is not a U.S.-only phenomenon. Uh, and the, the article recites similar issues in Germany and Brazil, but then it states that, quote, however, the United States is the only Western democracy where a nationally viable right-wing movement currently exceeds the threshold, threshold for clear fascism. So let me go back to what the, this article from the foreign uh, press is saying. What they are saying is that out of everything that's going on in countries like Brazil, et cetera, where right, right-wing near-fascism is occurring as well, what they are saying is that the U.S. is the only place where that threshold has been crossed and where the political one of the viable political parties is clearly uh, a fascist organization. Now, the article goes on to say, while Golden Dawn has has also passed that threshold, it was a short-lived and never won more than 7% of the Greek vote. So Golden Dawn was a, a, uh, a, a political uh, fascist party in, in Greece. Uh, and they, the article goes on to say that's a far cry from the electoral threat in the U.S., uh, and the, and that the right, and the threat that the right wing movement currently poses. It alone, they say, features clear repeated linkages between organized, durable, paramilitary forces and a mainstream major political party with access to institutionalized mechanisms of power and governance. This is critical, and this is me saying this now. This is critical, and it's an opinion I share. 
we as a nation are not acting like we realize just how close we came to a fascist state on January 6th, or just how close we came to a coup that would have been backed both by paramilitary groups, but also some in the armed forces and the police. The vast majority of the January 6th rioters were either current or former military and or law enforcement. One once the Republican Party has consolidated their support among the military, and I believe they are close to doing that, they will not hesitate to invoke the Insurrection Act, declare Biden's presidency, presidency as illegitimate, and install Trump as the Fuhrer of the U.S. Now, the article goes on uh, to propose their hypothesis on why the U.S. and the Republicans are so bad. They say, quote, why is the United States the sole exception? Some of the answer lies in the historic persistence of militant, uh, of militants and non-state armed groups, mainly affiliated with the political right in both the Deep South and the Midwest. Think about the Ku Klux Klan, the Michigan militia. Some of the answer also lies with the staggering saturation of small arms. The United States has the highest rate of legal civilian gun ownership, more than twice that of the runner-up Yemen, which is in the midst of a civil war. So what they're saying is that that we have a per capita gun ownership rate that is higher than uh, than Yemen, which is in the Middle East and is also in the midst of a civil war. And we also have the highest absolute number of civilian owned guns, legal or illegal, uh, more than five times that of the runner up, which is India. The rate of gun ownership also translates into wildly dis disproportionate a disproportionate homicide by firearms rate among other developed countries. As far as, as, as far-right violence increased 250% globally in the last five years, the United States was hit hardest far, uh, by far, accounting for more incidents and deaths than any other Western state. But much of the answer comes down to a series of political processes set into motion by the Republican Party officials and organizers. And it is propelled by a far-right media ecology that seeks to uh, cultivate and exploit an increasingly radical, ultra-conservative ultra base. We identify three mechanisms driving this change. And they go on to list what these three mechanisms are. The first is direct sing signaling. And what they say that means is that the GOP politicians speak directly to paramilitary groups and give them commands. All this is currently rare. Trump engaged in direct signaling more than once with troubling statements like, quote, I am urging my supporters to go to the polls and watch very carefully, end quote, or his message to the proud, proud boys to, quote, stand back and stand by, end quote. This shows a willingness to solicit help from armed groups and if unchecked will increase over time. The second of the three um, that they mentioned, uh, mechanisms driving uh, this change to ultra-militarism and, and fascism, is the uh, permissive signaling. The GOP politicians do not necessarily give specific instructions to paramilitary groups, but indicate that right-wing paramilitary violence will go unpunished and the GOP will interfere in attempts to stop it from happening. Trump's infamous reference to, quote, some very fine people on both sides, end quote, at Charlottesville, Unite the Rights rally is a, a 
paradigmatic case of permissive signaling. A more recent example is when GOP politicians supported the caravan of nearly 100 trucks that surrounded and harassed a Biden campaign bust on a Texas highway. The incident was celebrated by local Texas GOP officials, uh, Senator, Senator Marco Rubio and Trump, among others. And by the way, they are now the, that care, the, those individuals that Trump uh, nutcase in those 100 trucks uh, are being sued uh, by uh, the Biden campaign. And hopefully uh, they will take them for everything they have and put them uh, in the poor house. All right. Uh, so um, it, it, the article goes on to say after the armed occupation of uh, the Michigan State Capitol on April the 30th, 2020, the Republican Speaker of the House said, quote, there's nothing more American than people coming together to ensure their voices are being heard, end quote. Now, of course, they said that about the armed occupation of the Michigan Capitol, but they didn't say that when uh, mostly black and brown people supported by white allies uh, went to the streets to protest the murder of George Floyd. They said something completely motherfucking different in that case and called us hoods and, and thugs. So um, uh, permissive signaling also occurs, the article says, when responsibility for acts of violence are shifted onto left wing groups, such as when Florida Representative Matt Gates blamed Antifa for the Capitol insurrection on the House floor just hours after the attack. Permissive signaling was also seen after the Kyle Rittenhouse killed two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rittenhouse's actions were met with varying levels of support from conservative pundit Ann Coulter, Fox News' Tucker Carlson, and Trump. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson repeatedly declined to condemn Rittenhouse's actions and praised the role of citizen soldiers, his words, in combating unrest. GOP donors managed to raise $2 million for Rittenhouse's bail. Permissive signaling carries lower political cost to politicians than direct signaling and offers a degree of distance and plausible deniability in the face of criticism. However, the fact that so many GOP politicians engage in it has serious consequences. It clears the way for a similar number of more radical acts of support and collaboration, such as normalizing military violence as a fixture of white uh, right-wing politics. Meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden has readily condemned violence associated with Antifa and racial justice protests on multiple occasions, while other Democratic Party officials and politicians have never voiced support for violence, despite misleading claims to the contrary. Uh, and in fact, I would say that many on the left uh, have done the opposite. Many of the people on the left uh, feed into the false narrative that it was Black Lives Matter that uh, organized riots uh, in in the protest against the murder of George Floyd. That is not the case. Some of those uh, those rallies organized by BLM were were the, the control was taken over by some uh, violent groups, but it was never any of the leaders of BLM that supported that violence. And the article goes on to say this is notable, not just in comparison, but also because left-wing political violence is less frequent and much less lethal. Additionally, there are virtually no documented ties between institutional Democrats and violent Antifa groups. This is an asymmetrical phenomenon. It is almost entirely confined to the right. 
And like I have said many times anyway, Antifa stands for anti-fascist. So the the group that they are fighting against the, uh, and, and that the Republicans are blaming for all of the violence is, an, uh, is a group that, that is, opposes fascism. So I guess that makes the Republicans pro-fascist, as I am saying, and, and as this article is saying uh, that I'm currently reviewing. Now, the third uh, of the motivating factors uh, is organizational coordination. Uh, GOP politicians and government officials work with paramilitary groups, cooperating with them in performances that make it clear they are part of the same movement. In one example, the now co-chair of the Michigan GOP was involved in organizing an attempt to disrupt vote counting in Detroit and organize 19 buses to Washington for the January 6th insurrection. In another, the Michigan Republican Senate leader appeared at an event alongside organizers of the armed occupation of the State House only weeks after the incident, sharing the stage with a militia member who would later be implicated in the plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. We need you to know we need you now more than ever uh, in that was a quote uh, he, he told the crowd when he was appearing with these militia groups. So the the, uh, article goes on. Organizational coordination also occurs when paramilitary groups provide security for GOP rallies and officials. In Portland, Oregon, during 2017, the the Multma County Republican Party formally approved a resolution to partner with militia groups to provide security for events, uh, explicitly naming Oregon's three percenters and oath keepers in the resolution. These groups also often act as uninvited security, seen at Trump rallies in Minneapolis and Dallas. At a rally uh, for Senator Kelly Loeffler uh, and now Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Greene was protected by by a three percenter group. An attorney for the Oath Keeper uh, indicted in connection with the January 6th insurrection claimed in a court document that he had a VIP pass to attend the Trump rally and had met with Secret Service agents. That's scary, in my opinion. So lastly, I will recite what the authors um, uh, see as a solution. They say, quote, the Biden administration, with support from the Democrats, likely short-lived, likely short-lived control over Congress, must act quickly and decisively to stop the growing union of paramilitary groups and right-wing politicians. This can only be accomplished through an aggressive legislative agenda that makes clear they are capable of positive, popular government while moving to eliminate procedural instruments that the GOP can use to impede and erode democratic institutions. Now, of course, what they're talking about is a filibuster, and the problem is that the Democrats are not going to do it. They won't come together, and they won't utilize their short-lived power to enact legislation that prevents the Republicans from making progress. The Republicans are poised to take control of the House in 2022 and potentially the Senate. And if they do, they will legislate and litigate their way to a guaranteed win in 2024. And quite frankly, with what the fuck is going on, like if it was only voter restriction, I believe that we could overcome that because we have proven that no matter how difficult they make it to vote, we will still come out and vote when it counts. But what they are legislating now is the ability to overthrow the affair and, and open election and to designate whoever they want as a motherfucking winner. 
If they are able to do that, they will have a guaranteed win in the presidency in 2024. Now, here's a comment from um, uh, a, a, a site called NewPoliticalReview.com, written shortly after January the 6th, and I think it's informative. It says, quote, and Joe Biden thinks impeachment is too divisive well, won't, uh, and won't be in the interest of unity. Says we need a, quote, principled and strong, end quote, Republican Party. Shame. Biden's, wor Biden's words are as insane as anything Trump has ever tweeted, end quote. And I agree wholeheartedly with that article. I agree. Biden is on the wrong track. We cannot motherfucking. We need to do everything possible to uh, to block, disrupt and 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 eliminate what the Republicans are attempting to do. And from my perspective, and I'll just end with this, if we don't stay woke, a Republican fascist takeover of this country is a certainty. And we will have to resort to the physical struggle outlined in the quote from Frederick Douglass that I give at the end of this podcast every week. If you want to save lives, recognize where we are now and help me stop the fascists from gaining complete control over our country. All right, that's it for what's on my mind. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the news. Welcome back. Um, so first up, I just want to go very, very quickly through some uh, breaking news stories. Uh, these stories are not necessarily the, the those that just came up today, but they are stories that I didn't want to uh, provide a lot of detail on, but did want think that they were worth mentioning. Uh, the first up is that Trump backed the wrong candidate in a Republican versus Republican special election in Congress uh, in uh, suburban uh, Fort Worth, uh, Texas, um, which was a humiliation for him. And he went on um, a, uh, of course, on the news shows uh, claiming that he really hadn't lost, but he did. So Trump had given his blessings to Susan Wright, who was a widow of a two-term two incumbent, Ron Wright, and Ron Wright has the notoriety of being the first sitting member of Congress to die of COVID-19. Uh, he died in February. And, and this idiot motherfucker, his last vote before getting sick was, uh, was to overturn the 2020 election. So in my opinion, uh, good riddance to that motherfucker. So anyway, uh, Trump had backed uh, his widow, uh, Susan. And Susan lost uh, to Jake Elsey, who's another asshole Republican. But at least uh, to some degree, this shows that Trump's power is waning. Uh, whether or not the rest of the Republicans will start to wake up to that fact is a different story. Next up, and just breaking news, uh, I, I just want to note that the defrocked uh, uh, cardinal, um, Catholic cardinal Theodore McCarrick, was criminally charged on Wednesday with sexually abusing a 16-year-old boy in 1974. Now, this bitch thought that he was going to get away with it because the statute of limitations had run out. Uh, but because of a quirk in the law, because he left the state, uh, that meant that the the uh, statute of limitations account uh, didn't continue. And so 
uh, in that case, it's still open and, uh, they could charge, um, uh, this, uh, motherfucker with, uh, with that rape. So, um, I think it's a definitely a good thing that he was charged. Of course, hopefully he will get, uh, he's 91 years old. So any uh, sentence whatsoever that he gets would be a life sentence and it's what he deserves. But the thing that I want to note about this, even though he had, he was eventually defrocked uh, from the Catholic church, that was not until after he was supported by the Pope and he had been moved around and supported by many other uh, Catholic leaders uh, and allowed to uh, rape and harm uh, many, many more kids. Uh, so uh, the fact that they defrocked him, but uh, not until after the statute of limitations was out on those other cases, I'm glad of the quirk in this law that allowed him to be held accountable, at least to be charged. We'll see if he's held accountable. All right, that's it for the breaking news stories. Uh, next up, I want to talk about um, uh, a, a full news story. Uh, and what I want to talk about is um, the conviction of Ed Buck. I don't know if you are familiar with this story. I do recall when uh, the incident came out. Uh, actually, I don't, there were a couple of incidents, and I don't recall the first one, but I do remember the second one, and it was... It was crazy that this idiot, Ed Buck, even had the nerve to try to claim that um, that a second death in his apartment uh, was somehow accidental. But let's get to the to the article. And the article reads, a Democratic Party donor Ed Buck was convicted Tuesday of multiple crimes in connection with the deaths of two black men who overdosed in his apartment in West Hollywood, California, more than a year apart. Uh, Buck 66, who was accused of plying the men with drugs during se uh, sexual encounters, was found guilty of all nine felony counts in U.S. District Court in downtown Los Angeles, including two counts of distribution of a controlled substance resulting in death. Two charges each, uh, the, the two charges each carry mandatory minimums of 20 years in prison. Uh, so, uh, Gamelli Moore, 26, was found dead of an overdose in Buck's apartment in July 2017. Uh, and that's the, the incident that I don't recall hearing about. Uh, but then in January 2019, Timothy Dean was found dead in the same residence. And that's the one that I recalled about. And that's when they had also brought up the, the previous death. Uh, and, uh, this fucking idiot Buck was trying to say that it was merely a coincidence that two black men uh, were found dead in his apartment uh, and he had nothing to do with it. So um, the, uh, so here's a quote um, in this article. It says, quote, Buck exerted power and control over his victims, typically targeting individuals who were destitute, homeless, or struggling with drug addiction, end quote. Uh, and that was the Department of Justice, as it said in its release on Thursday. They said he, quote, he exploited the wealth and power balance between them by offering his victims money to use drugs and to let Buck inject them with narcotics, end quote. So uh, so essentially what happened is this guy who uh, was uh, a rapist, uh, he would go out and find uh, black men uh, he was gay and a rapist. Um, and those two things, again, I am not equating them and they're not equating, uh, equatable. So don't get me wrong on that. But this, this was a guy who was gay. And in order to get his rocks off, he 
liked to see black men die and have sex with them while they were dying. And so he would go out, find some, uh, find a black man that was down on his, uh, on his luck, uh, and then offer them drugs to, uh, to, to bring, to come back to his house and do drugs and have sex with him. And then he would overdose them, uh, and, and kill them. Uh, and, uh, I am, uh, really happy that he was convicted. Now, the news media, though, wants to say that, and this is part of the article, that Buck was a notable political donor, and he had given more than $53,000 to Democratic candidates um, uh, to the Democratic uh, or, or Congressional Campaign Committee since uh, 20, uh, 2008. Uh, and so uh, what we're talking about here is uh, an individual that uh, over 13 years has given 53000 but they're trying to make it seem like that his deviant behavior uh, is uh, equated with uh, progressive or liberal values, which it isn't. So uh, that is the reason, one of the reasons why I present, uh, presented this story. One is it's relevant to the black community because it was uh, black men that were murdered. Uh, and two, because I want to show that Though I'm against the exploitation of black people, whether it's by individuals on the right or the left. Um, but like I said, I do have to say that this story um, has been characterized uh, as um, a, a, a rich elite on the left uh, protected by the deep state uh, because they gave fifty three thousand uh, dollars over 13 years to the Democratic Party. But there have been Republican criminals that have doted millions to the Republican Party. And when they are convicted, they aren't characterized as, quote, notable, uh, end quote, political donors. So I think this is a disingenuous characterization of Buck. Uh, Buck is a, was a predator and a deviant and uh, a murderer of black men. And he got what he fucking deserved. Uh, but that has nothing to do with the Democratic Party uh, or uh, progressives or or uh, liberals. All right, so the next story is the select committee to um, investigate the January 6th uprising held uh, their first meeting this past week. And I think this is an important story, but before we get into it, I want to provide a quote from a book that um, I had bought about um, uh, one and a half uh, months to two months ago. Uh, but I've just had a, a chance to start uh, reading it. And the book is titled America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and, Pol and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. And it's by Elizabeth Hinton. There is a segment from the introduction uh, that I think is informative for this story and to give it uh, some context. So Dr. Hinton has... Uh, Dr. Hinton, in this part that I'm going to relay, has just gone through a list of uprisings that occurred in the black community as a result of oppression and unequal treatment um, uh, from uh, the white society. Um, and, the and she says, quote, the 1960s produced an image of riots, uh, and riots is in quotes, as fundamentally black. Yet historically, most instances of mass criminality have been perpetrated by white vigilantes, vigilantes hostile to integration and who joined together in roving mobs, taking, quote, justice, end quote, into their own hands, often with the support of local uh, police, end quote. The reason I want to quote this uh, before we get to this story on the, the content of the uh, select committee's hearings 
is that we're seeing it play out uh, in the same way today. We have a, riot, a riotous, mostly white mob attack the Capitol in an attempt to overthrow the government. And the narrative that we hear from uh, the Republican Party now uh, is that it was at its worst innocuous, that it didn't really amount to anything, uh, and uh, that at its best, the individuals that had attacked the Capitol were actually patriots. What the Republicans and their supporters are saying is that the bipartisan protests in response to the murder of George Floyd were riots because they were black and that those that stormed the Capitol should be given a medal. It is within this context that we must view the contents of the select committee hearing uh, and the response to them. So I want to examine the story by quoting from an NBC News article that I found online uh, titled How Select Committee's Hearing on January 6th Mob Exposes the Worst of GOP Hypocrisy, end quote. And it states um, hypocrisy within the Republican Party is nothing new. But on Tuesday, it reached a new low. The centerpiece of the hearing uh, opening um, a congressional investigation into the Capitol insurrection was the emotional testimony by uh, four frontline police officers who were protecting lawmakers, staff and visitors at the Capitol complex on January 6th when an angry mob threatened their lives. The officers painted a bleak and disturbing picture of not only the hate and violence that they faced that day, but also how Republicans actually view law enforcement. Members of the GOP are willing to trample, quite literally in some cases, on one of the last remaining pillars of the party they purport to support, rather than acknowledge the truth that Donald Trump lost the election fair and square. The appalling display Tuesday goes to show just how comprehensive is the revisionist party leaders in engage the revisionism party leaders are engaging in while Trump continues to tout these deceitful views. Historically, Republicans have been the party that has proudly represented law and order. But while Republicans are still quick to declare their loyalty to law enforcement on the campaign trail, most of the party has become apologists for the rioters. As was noted throughout Tuesday's hearing, GOP members have refused to acknowledge the brutal for that brutal force was used against officers during the riot at the Capitol and that the police were themselves the target. Top House and Senate GOP leaders dismissed the investigation, suggested that the reports of violence were exaggerated and otherwise sided with the insurrectionists over those defending democracy, even though a police officer lost his life. In a chilling and powerful testimony in the House on Tuesday, the four officers painted a terrifying picture of how Trump supporters treated police when confronted by them face to face. They detailed how they were beaten, knocked unconscious, and made to fear for their lives at the hand of a mob who not only outnumbered them, but also came prepared for battle as well as an attempted coup. The U.S. Capitol Police Sergeant Akil Gunnell, through tears, put the jarring Republican contradiction in sharp relief. Participants in the mob use the very instruments with which they proclaim to support the police in actions of violence against them. Some waved Blue Lives Matter flags as they accosted him. Others attacked him with a flagpole. In addition to the moral tragedy within the Republican Party that was clearly on display uh, Tuesday, there was political malpractice as well. Many Americans are unhappy with the criticism that has been leveled at the police from the left after the killing of George Floyd and the racial protests that involved looting. 
but uh, less than a year and a half uh, from the 2020 midterm elections, we're already seeing a pro-police messaging from the GOP bashing Democrats for the lack of a law and order agenda. And as violent crime incidents are rising this summer and the midterm campaign kicks into high gear, police forces have seen a 45% increase in retirements and an 18% bump in resignations. So yet the hearing Tuesday, Democrats took the opportunity to, to express full support for the officers sharing their testimony. Even as there's been infighting among the party about defund the police, uh, the defund the police platform, as many have criticized whole police forces over bad actors who wear the badge. Moreover, the Democrats are offering solutions to address these issues through more community intervention and funding, while Republicans can continue to spoof outrage to score political points with their base. So the, the fact of the matter is this. Um, I am not at all surprised that the Republicans are attacking the police. The only time the Republicans support the police is when the police are massing against black or brown people. When the people being brutalized in the same in the name of law and order or black or brown, the Republicans provide unwavering support. But when the criminals are on the other side of the uh, of the police or white, then the Republicans are ready to stand uh, to, on the side of the criminals and to destroy the police. Uh, and there was a there was a poignant um, statement made by one of the January 6th rioters as as she was being interviewed. Uh, and she had said that they were shooting us and uh, and providing uh, and shooting tear gas at us and, and 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 using force against us. And she said, quote, they're supposed to do that to BLM, not us. So we seem to forget that the Oklahoma City bomber was white that the individuals that planned to kidnap and murder the governor of Michigan uh, were white, and that the group the ex-president said that he blamed, uh, and, and in that particular case, the ex-president said that he blamed the governor for that, for her own uh, kidnapping, uh, and called the militia that planned the attack patriots. The Republican Party, which is now, in my opinion, a terrorist organization, is not now, nor have they ever been pro-police. They are pro-brutality against people of color. They support anyone that is also pro-brutality against people of color. But if you are not, they will fuck you up and kill you regardless of the uniform you wear. All right, so that's it for that story. And now we'll move to the last story, uh, which is uh, some nonsensical bullshit from Gates, Gomert, and Green. Uh, but I think that that bullshit was kind of replicated um, uh, with a bunch more of the Republicans that happened this week as well, when Kevin McCarthy led a group of numb nuts uh, uh, out to protest the fact that Biden had said that, uh, or actually uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi had said that uh, the the House needed to go back to wearing masks because the Delta variant is, is killing people left and right. Uh, and they wanted to protest against it, uh, talking about it, it. It was tyranny, tyranny, uh, to wear a goddamn mask when they're supporting the motherfuckers who who stormed the Capitol and tried to overthrow the government. The Republican Party is nothing but a fucking terrorist organization. Uh, but anyway, um, I digress. So this next story comes from the black news site, The Root. So I'm going to read it as it is because the Arthur talks like me anyway, so you wouldn't be able to tell my voice from the Arthur's voice. So it goes 
like this. Uh, QAnon Apostle Marjorie Taylor Greene, unsanctioned high school chaperone Matt Gates, and the self-proclaimed dumbest man in Congress were forced to evacuate a press conference uh, when their regularly scheduled bullshit shit, uh, parade turned into a uh, shit show. So, uh, repra- uh, Marjor- Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Louis Gohmert, and Matt Gates scheduled a Tuesday press conference outside the Department of Justice in support of the detained January 6th insurrectionists. So, get, get what these motherfuckers are doing. They are in support of the individuals that have been arrested for their assault on democracy and have been held in in jail uh, rather than released. So these motherfucking Republicans came out to protest uh, law enforcement doing its job. Uh, so the article goes on, contrary to their usual stance on law and order, the elected officials wanted the world to know how unfair it was to punish violent thugs who did absolutely nothing wrong except attempt a violent overthrow of the government. Uh, uh, at Green and Getz's behest, it didn't go well. The three-ring circus began with the Stooges attempting to reenact their proudest moment by storming the DOJ building. Unfortunately, the well-planned attack was thwarted by a secret device called a locked door, forcing the trio in to say things uh, to, to say things instead. So Gomer Green Getz apparently didn't uh, heed the words of the founding father, uh, Dwayne Michael Carter, who noted that real G's move in silence like lasagna. Of course, being from Texas, we know Gomer probably call, uh, spells it uh, lasagna. Uh, first of all, kudos to the guy who showed up with the whistle because there, the, there was a video on this and there was a guy with a whistle to drown out the sound of the lies being uh, born. Although Matt Gates might uh, be used to hearing this sound when he shows up to check out high school cheerleading competitions, it totally ruined his, prince co- his press conference. Not since the Andy Griffith show has a white man used a whistle so effectively. Protesters who appeared, uh, but um, uh, protesters also appeared, but the real MVP was the actual ban with a sign that read, quote, rapists and terrorists sit down plus shut up, end quote, which I think is brilliant. After Gates, Green and Gomer testified about their hate for elections, law enforcement uh, and reading out loud, I'm guessing the, the whistle was really loud. Uh, Congresswoman Crazy Eyes finally decided to end the dumpster fire uh, after declaring that she will not be uh, the turd, or, or maybe she said deterred. Again, uh, there was a whistle. Gomer appeared confused, which is to say uh, he looked normal, but judging from Green's long face, she was not very happy. So Green fled the site of the intolerance left's refusal to allow government officials to carry out their official duties at a press conference and support of people who wouldn't let government officials carry out their official duties. It was a totally, it was totally unfair how the media media harassed her in the manner that she harassed David Hogue, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Corey Bush, and Holocaust victims. Meanwhile, Gates ran like he was sneaking out of his girlfriend's window uh, as one heckler repeatedly asked him if he was a pedophile. He should be applauded for managing to restrain himself by replying, who's asking? The white nationalist saviors were there to support men like Proud Boy leaders Joe Biggs, who has spent three months in jail for nothing more than leading a white supremacist gang on a cop-beating spree at the nation's capital. In a statement issued on Tuesday, Biggs moaned and groaned about how all the people in jail are treating him like he's in jail. 
So unfortunately, Biggs had been um, sub subjected to bad food, terrible sleeping conditions, uh, and very limited spa time. He hasn't even been offered a private bathroom, so he can't even shit in peace. The reason that I wanted to read this story in full is because it's from the root, like I said, and so I, I didn't feel that I needed to edit what this black Arthur Michael Herrero had to say, and second, because it's a clear explanation of the nature of the Republican hypocrisy. The Republican Party stripped Liz Cheney of her committee assignments and threatened to strip her of the rest because she is telling the truth about Trump lies but they won't expel a Q-supporting nut job, a pedophile, or a self-described despicable idiot uh, in their, from their ranks. So uh, it is clear to me that they are uh, a complete and, and total terrorist and criminal organization bent on the overthrow of the U.S. government. All right, that's it for the news this week. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to the segment, This Shit is for Us. Right, welcome back. So, um, as I had mentioned in the intro, uh, there are a number of different topics that I want to talk about this week's in this week's episode of um, this shit is for us. So, uh, I believe that the episode of Rational Black Thought this week is really kind of following a theme. In the segment of what's on my mind, I broke down how the Republican Party is attempting to bring about a fascist state that is antagonistic to the hopes and dreams of African-Americans. In the upcoming seg uh, segment on Bible study with Atheist Mike, I am going to show a direct correlation between religious organizations and chattel slavery. And in this segment, I'm going to discuss identity politics and show how to conduct a thorough enemy analysis. My objective for the entire podcast this week's, week is to give you the ability to not just identify who you should be fighting against, but also to give you the ability to, to identify who you should and, sh and should not uh, let influence your thinking and your actions. So as I say uh, most weeks uh, uh, during the segment of This Shit Is For Us, this is uh, intended to be from me, a black man, uh, to uh, my black uh, brothers and sisters, or the, to the black community. Uh, this segment uh, of the Rational Black Thought is really not intended for a wide audience, but that doesn't mean that if you're not black, you can't listen to it. Uh, it does mean, though, that there may be some nuances to this story that you just don't get. There may be some things that you don't agree with because it is a black thing. So um, let's get started on this. Uh, I was um, um, this week I was reading a book called uh, that's called Designing the Mind. Uh, and in, in, in the chapter titled Self-Direction and Its Impediments, the author writes the following, quote, other people naturally have great influence over us. Without cognitive self-mastery, the opinions of others deeply influence and manipulate ours. They lure us into a, a dogmatic, the, into dogmatic beliefs which may or may not be accurate, and they cause us to believe certain paths in life will lead to well-being when all they lead to is monotony. 
Without emotional self-mastery, the words and thoughts of others cause us to suffer. We put ourselves fully into the hands of other people, unable to be content on our own. And without behavioral self-mastery, the actions and attitudes of others compel us to conform even when we know better, end quote. The author also quotes uh, Frederick Nietzsche saying, uh, he who cannot obey himself will be commanded, end quote. What I am attempting to do this week is to give you the ability to command yourself, to make your own decisions and to take actions that are aligned with your own and hopefully ours as a black community, uh, our self-interest. One other thing the book that I was reading um, uh, talked about was it gave a brief review of a Netflix video. Uh, I'm not sure what to call it, whether it's a film or a documentary, but it's called The Push. I watched it, and essentially it's an elaborate practical joke that was played out on an unsuspecting individual. But it was not just for comedy. Well, actually, it wasn't at all for comedy pur purposes. Essentially, a mentalist designed an experiment to see if he could manipulate someone into committing murder. And spoiler alert, he was able to do so. I still recommend that you watch this this video uh, because it's extremely informative. Now, of course, no one died, uh, but he got a real person to push a man off a building while thinking that he was pushing that man to his death. I mean, can you imagine that? Uh, I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the, the individual that pushed the man off the building, even though it was a setup, and so therefore the man didn't die. The person that pushed him didn't know that. The person that pushed him thought that he was pushing the man to his death, and he did it anyway. I'm not sure that person shouldn't be arrested and charged with attempted murder. But anyway, um, uh, like I said, uh, the film shows, what this film shows is how with with very simple manipulation, someone can be convinced to do something that they would have thought was way outside their value system uh, before that. Now, like I said, I recommend watching this film to see how easily it is to manipulate humans to act in ways that are not only outside their value system, but also in ways that are in direct contradiction to their own self-interest. Um, now, I may, may be combining too much in the segment this week. Certainly the uh, attacks against identity politics and cancel culture are related, but adding the topic of systematic enemy analysis might be a stretch. But I feel it is necessary to bring in so that we can get an idea of how to combat the psychological attacks uh, that we have been under and are continuing to be under. So let's start with identity politics. What is it and why was it under attack from the fascist right? And also from the left uh, to a certain degree that have been manipulated into thinking that identity politics were against their self-interest. So the Stanford uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines um, the term um, uh, identity politics as, quote, the the latent phrase identity politics has come to signify a wide range of political activity and theorizing founded in the shared experience of injustice of members of a certain social groups. Rather than organizing solely around belief systems, uh, programmatic manifestos or, manifest, manifestos or party affiliation, 
Identity political uh, formations typically aim to secure the political freedom of a specific constituency marginalized within its larger context. Members of that constituency assert or reclaim ways of understanding their distinctiveness that challenge dominant characterizations with the goal of greater self-determination, end quote. Now, based on that definition, which I think is accurate, why would anyone expect us, black people, to be organized politically in any other way than by identity politics? We should be identifying with the black community, and our political organization should should be based on fighting against our marginalization within the larger society. So uh, we are not organized around progressive or conservative ideologies, In fact, I am more aligned with conservative ideologies than progressive from a strict policy point of view. But I recognize through the process of systematic enemy analysis that all Republicans are racist. And I know that using the word all uh, is is sometimes problematic. But in this particular case, like I said before, people might find this hyperbolic. But uh, how many members of the Nazi party were not anti-Semitic? Uh, I don't think that anybody would say any of them were not. And so you cannot say that a racist organization with a racist as its le- at its head, uh, who has expelled uh, and a party that has expelled racist ideology, you can't say that any of its members are not racist. They all are racist. And as I have been saying uh, for some time, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the, I, I recognize, again, as I said, through this process, that uh, that no black person in their right mind can support the current iteration of the Republican Party in good faith. They have to be in it for their own benefit, because uh, uh, identity politics is the only way to look at this, and the only way to look at it uh, through the framework of systematic enemy analysis to conclude that the Republicans are the enemies of all black people. So why was the right, and to a large, uh, to a, a large, not not major, but to a large extent, many members of the left so hell bent against identity politics? I found uh, an article that I think provides some clarification on this, and this is from Vox. And the passage that I want to discuss reads as follows: "Quote: Identity politics is a very vague phrase, but it generally refers to the discussion of and politicking around issues pertaining to one's well identity." The focus typically falls on women, racial minorities, immigrants, LGBTQ people, and religious minorities such as Muslim Americans. All the social issues uh, you may have heard of in the past several years, same-sex marriage, police shootings of unarmed black men, trans people in bathrooms, the fluidity of gender, discussions about rape culture, campus battles about safe spaces, and trigger warnings are typically the kinds of issues people mean when they refer to identity politics. There's another side to identity politics that you hear less about in the U.S., particularly white identity. This is by definition an identity, but it is one that is so widely assumed to be the norm in America that issues pertaining to white identity are typically not regarded as identity politics. And this is the point that I wanted to make. All politics are based on identity. What those that are against identity politics are saying is that everyone should acquiesce to a political framework of re- or frame of reference that supports white politics. You cannot be political without 
considering identity. So what I want from a political engagement will always be based on who I am, and therefore it will always be based on my identity as a black man. What those who are fighting against identity politics want is for every person to drop their own self-interest in the political arena and focus only on a dispassionate political discussion. What I learned years ago in the mid-80s was that even if I agreed with the Republican platform, the Republicans would, if at all possible, uh, uh, actually mid-90s uh, I learned this, uh, that, the, that even if I agreed with the Republican platform, the Republicans would, if all possible, implement it would implement that policy in a way that would exclude me and everyone that looks like me from any benefits that that political policy produced. On top of that, most of their slogans and political platforms were merely euphemisms for my destruction. As the last poet said in their song, Coming Home, the war on drugs is really a war on soul brothers. People, we cannot be fooled into thinking that we can look at the world and form opinions outside the reference of who we are. We are black people, and what black people need may not be what either the Republicans or the Democrats want to give, and that is why I am neither. I vote based on what will do black people the most good, period. Now let's move uh, to so-called cancel culture. This fight has a lot of black people uh, that I believe are on the wrong side. So what is cancel culture and why is the political right so dead set against it? Let's dive in by reviewing an article from NPR. Where did cancel culture come from? It starts. Six or seven years ago, the idea of, quote, canceling, end quote, someone was largely used among younger people online, particularly black Twitter, as Vox um, uh, Aja Romano uh, explained. In that usage, cancel refers to a pretty unremarkable concept, says Nicole Holliday, assistant professor of linguistic, linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania. It is used to refer to a cultural boycott, she said. We have had the term boycott forever and ever. It just means I'm not, giving, I'm not going to put my attention or money or support behind this person or organization because they've done something that I don't agree with. This is not new. This is very old. In other words, it was just the marketplace of ideas at work. But the concept uh, gained popularity, uh, but as the concept gained popularity, concerns grew particularly among the media and political elites about the threat of online mobs shutting down speech. That perceived punitive atmosphere came to be known as cancel culture, and people on the left were often accused of perpetrating it. Though the right accused the left of cancel culture, they are actually practicing it all the time. Look at what is going on in the Republican Party. Kevin McCarthy has canceled any Republicans that voted to impeach Trump, voted for the January 6th bipartisan committee, or in any way tells the truth about what Trump was all about. He has shut them down, and to him, that is not cancel culture, that's just politics. Cancel culture, like identity politics, is something that everyone does. If I do not agree with someone, I will refuse to support them, and if I am a member of an organization, I will re-rally to have that organization deplatform them. When my company announced, and, and this is me speaking now, not reading an article, when my company announced uh, that they were bringing on a former member of the Trump administration for a key role in the company, I wrote to the CEO and I told him I disagreed with that decision. And I posted my message, uh, that the one that I sent to the CEO on our uh, Black Employees uh, uh, Resource Group, uh, asking others to do the same. 
and I would have uh, and I would have been attacked by the right, and some on the left is practicing cancel culture, and they would be right. It isn't that I don't think the cancel culture is is real. It is that I not only do I think that it is is real, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, uh, and just the opposite, it is something that we need to practice more of. The Montgomery boy, bus boycott was was cancel culture and was, uh, as was any and every other boycott that has ever happened, every op-ed is a form of cancel culture, as there are always against something or someone. There are ideas that uh, do not deserve to have a platform, and it is only acting, with, acting within our own self-interest to try and shut them down. Okay, now that I've explained the concepts of identity politics and cancel culture and shown how the attacks against them were perpetrated by those who want us to act against our own self-interest, it is now time to move on to the discussion of systematic enemy analysis. This topic I have talked about uh, on many episodes of The Rational Black Thought, and I'll break it down in a bit more detail today. First of all, systematic enemy analysis comes out of identity politics and our embrace of cancel culture. It is twofold. To first identify what is in our best interest and what is not, and then to comprehensively determine those individuals and institutions that are against us and devise strategies to both shut down their attacks and proffer a counterattack that destroys them. As I have been saying many, many times over the last several weeks, we are at war. Now, the book uh, Reality Revolution, Return to the Way, by Ariel Robinson, a.k.a. Kofi Adade, uh, has a chapter called Systematic uh, Enemy Analysis, and that will be a foundation of our discussion. Uh, I have uh, quoted this book many times before, and I feel it's a must-read for any black person seeking to be an effective warrior in the fight against white supremacy. Adade starts the chapter with this statement, quote, Given the pervasive, pervasiveness of destruction and distortion imposed upon the, on the African existence, there is a need for constant vigilance and decoding of our present world reality. This constant vigilance and decoding is what I call systematic enemy analysis. It is an analysis of the enemy, which is the European cultural and ideological system or a silly of its fulfillers on a continuous basis. Once we understand how to utilize the concepts of Asili and Otomowazo to identify Yurugu in thought and behavior, our decoding must be of everyday images, institutions, language, people, behavior, media, etc. As tedious as some may see such an exercise, it is essential for consciousness, transformation, and sanity. We must be persistent in questioning and, and analyzing every aspect of our existence, including our own behavior and thought, in order to identify and purge the enemy, the European Asili and its fulfillers from our consciousness and our lives. First, some refreshers on definitions or in order. Asili is a term coined by Dr. Marimba Ani in her book, Urugu, and is meant to represent the core or seed of a culture. Utamawazo is the energy or motivating factors of that culture, and Yurugu uh, was a uh, being in Dogon mythology that instead of waiting for his female twin to be born, uh, he tore away from the placenta to be born without her, and is considered to be the source of all discourse in Dogon mythology. 
and also Dr. Ani used that term Urugu to, Urugu to describe the European. So what, is a, what Adade is saying is that by understanding that cultures have a core, uh, in this case the modern world and the European cultural seed is racism and white supremacy, uh, or, or is racism, it's ultimo wazo or energy is white supremacy. And what Adadi is saying is that we need to analyze everything we encounter to see if it is supporting our fight for racial justice and equality, or if if it is instead supporting the cause of white supremacy and racism. With this analysis, we see that the attack on critical race theory, identity politics, and cancel culture are attacks by those who want white supremacy to continue, and it is against those of us that want to see it end. As Adade said, we have to conduct systematic enemy analysis on a constant and consistent basis. We have to analyze everything we encounter encounter, and also examine everything we think to make sure that we have not been influenced to think or act against our own self-interest. We also have to contribute or continue rather to examine uh, our thinking um, uh, ourselves, uh, not of ourselves only, but also uh, with the rest of our fellows in mind. So uh, we need to think about whether or not something is good or bad for us, but we need to think about whether or not it is good or bad for us as a collective. We cannot ultimately be successful in a vacuum. If any of us are oppressed, then none of us are truly free. This is serious business, and the enemy is everywhere, even in our own minds. Stay vigilant, my brothers and sisters, and let's stay on point and connected to our ultimate objective, freedom for us all. All right, uh, that is it uh, for the segment. Uh, This shit is for us. And kind of continuing with that theme, uh, we'll take a quick break and we come back. We will do Minute Bible Study with Atheist Mike, where I tie religion and slavery together. Welcome back. Okay, so in this uh, week's segment of Bible Study with Atheist Mike, or the Minute Bible Study with Atheist Mike, uh, the title is Religion and Slavery. So one of the many issues that I have with the Bible, and for that matter, most religious literature, is that it is so ambiguous that individuals on either side of an argument can make the claim that the scriptures support their cause. Nowhere is this more prominent or problematic as it is in the case of race relations, particularly slavery. First of all, let's dispel some nonsense. The Bible does, in very many passages, support slavery. That is undeniable. Now, what some defenders of the Bible would say is that the type of slavery that the Bible supports is not the type of of slavery that was perpetrated against Africans. To me, this is non-material. What type of human ownership is okay? I don't give a fuck what the circumstances were or are. There is no justification for one human being belonging to another. Now, um, the many nonsensical statements about why black people are supposed to be slaves is just that nonsense. Uh, Though they were touted by proponents of slavery all the time. The most popular of these nonsensical lines is the hematic curse, 
that is that when Noah's son Ham saw his father passed out drunk and naked, that God for some reason cursed uh, Ham instead of Noah uh, and uh, gave him a, quote, mark, end quote, uh, that the racists say was black skin. Of course, this is stupid, and since we all know that life began in Africa, uh, so the original color of human beings was black anyway. So this is stupid, and I don't really give it much weight at all uh, in debate. But what I'm talking about in this week's segment of Minutes Bible Study with Atheist Mike is not so much the theological uh, aspect of the relationship between religion and slavery, but the practical aspect of that. The question that I want to answer is how did religious institutions uh, practically impact the life of the enslaved? So, to inform our discussion, I'm going to quote from a paper published online called 17 Centuries of Sin, the Christian Past in Antebellum Slavery Debates. Now, the paper starts out with the following passage. Quote, in 1852, John Fletcher, a northerner transplanted to New Orleans, published a defense of slavery. In his fourth chapter, Fletcher turned to ecclesiastical history to demonstrate the perpetuity of Christian slaveholding. And he said, in, quote, in this investigation, we must uh, apply to the records of the Catholic Church, end quote. Although strong and bitter prejudice may exist against these records, the, the history of, the, of Christianity, according to Fletcher, showed that from the early church through the medieval era, slavery was never considered incompatible, incompatible with the faith. He narrated with the faith. He narrated this past over the course of several hundred pages, reproducing quotations from church fathers and councils that seemed to condone slavery and against the consensus of most scholarly accounts, insisting that early Christianity did not diminish the extent of Greco-Roman slavery, but only made it more humane. Christian tradition, Fletcher concluded, supported the Southern claim quote, that the institution of slavery and Christianity can never be antagonistic, end quote. So essentially what this article was saying is that this individual, uh, Fletcher, did some extensive research uh, in 1852 uh, and determined that in uh, the entire history of the Christian faith, it had never, ever been against slavery. Now, the article goes on to say that, uh, quote, Fletcher's book was not Exceptional in the use of church history throughout the antebellum era, dozens of pro-slavery authors, including Catholics, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists, employed tradition to defend the compatibility of Christianity and slavery, end quote. So what I'm trying to show here is that it wasn't just that those who supported slavery used the Bible to justify it. It was that they also use religious tradition to justify it, arguing that from its very inception, Christianity and slavery were compatible. The article also talks about the fact that those who opposed slavery also quoted the Bible and Christian history. But my point is, again, how can the inerrant word of God be so confusing that individuals and groups that are diametrically opposed in their thinking can both use the same history and the same words to justify their point of view? It is either wrong or useless. Well, then again, it could be both wrong and useless, which I think that's the correct answer. Now, another article presents the following information. 
uh, before uh, New World expansion uh, concepts of race and racial hierarchies uh, did not define who could and could not be enslaved in Western Europe. Instead, the spread of Christianity in early Middle Ages from the 5th to the 10th centuries marked the boundaries of slavery throughout Europe. Uh, throughout Europe. Historian David uh, Brion Davis argues that the Judeo-Christian belief in a monotheistic God who rules over his homogenous group of people eventually served to prevent European Christians from enslaving one another. As more Western Europeans converted to Christianity, this unified religious uh, identity enabled the decline of slavery in Europe, but allowed other rigid social and labor hierarchies to remain. By 1500, European Christians believed slavery was more devast was a more devastating punishment than execution for criminals and prisoners of war. Still, European Christians did not object to the enslavement of non-Christians, and I want you to note that. So, what this is saying is that they came to believe that Christianity was incompatible with enslaving other Christians, but not non-Christians. And it goes on particularly with ongoing conflicts between Christians and non-Christians within Europe, the nearby Islamic uh, world, and later in West, in, in West and Central Africa, which also included Muslim regions in, and the Americas. In response to these conflicts, a series of 15th, uh, 15th century popes argued for the enslavement of non-Christians as an, inst quote, instrument for Christian conversion. So, According to church law, Christians were protected from slavery, but Muslims, which were called infidels, and non-Christians, which were called pagans, were acceptable to enslave. Similarly, in the Islamic law, only non-Muslims could be enslaved. While Jewish populations living in a Christian-dominated Western Europe were protected from slavery in the Middle Ages, widespread anti-Semitic prejudice among European Christians led to Jewish persecution, exile, violent massacres, and even accusations of causing the Black Death. In the New World, the criteria for enslavement increasingly shifted from non-Christian to non-European. So get what this is saying. So Christianity, the religion, had, had originally said that slavery in and of itself was fine. Then they said slavery in and of itself was fine, but not to enslave other Christians. Then they said, well, slaving uh, uh, other uh, uh, other Christians was bad. However, uh, it was okay to enslave anyone who was non-European. And so as Europe Europeans began to emphasize religious, racial, and ethnic differences between themselves and American Indians and Africans, this boundary moved further from non-European to just be non-white. So ultimately what they came up with is that, is that slavery was a, was a, was a, despicable act upon another human unless that individual was something other than white. If it was, if the individual was something other than white, it was perfectly fine. That's what the religions, all of the religions decided. So what they came to believe was that uh, it, it, it was particularly okay to enable the enslavement of black Africans and their African-American descendants. So, Based on this evolving theology, European Christians initially saw non-Christians as neutral slaves, or as natural slaves, rather, with the New World expansion. However, 
uh, Europeans came to primarily associate Africans with the institution of slavery. To explain this racial shift from a Judeo-Christian worldview, 16th and 17th century theologians merged Aristotle's theory of natural slaves with the biblical curse of Ham. According to this interpretation, Africans, the descendants of Ham and Cana, Canaan, who Noah cursed into slavery for Ham's transgressions, uh, even though the Bible does not mention race or skin color in this narrative, According to these 16th century and 17th century theologians, Africans inherited Ham and Canaan's curse of slavery. By the 19th century, post-slavery advocates in the United States continued to use this misleading biblical justification, as well as Aristotle's theory of natural order and new world racial prejudice, prejudices to defend their support of slavery. So, the above passage shows, in my mind anyway, it, it wasn't necessarily that the religious, it wasn't necessarily that the religious view was that the Bible or the Quran said that slavery was justified. It was that these religions searched for their scriptures after determining in advance that slavery was justified to, supply, to, to find support in the word of their gods. So none of the Judeo-Christians or Islamic uh, religious uh, religions universally condemned slavery. Though some groups, like the Quakers, were against slavery, many other Christian denominations were pro-slavery. Though the Jews, uh, from a religious perspective, condemned slavery, they never let that condemnation get in the way of making money. Now, some of the people will say that that's an anti-Semitic statement, and, uh, and I know that some of the more outrageous claims of Jewish participation in the slave trade have been debunked, and I agree that it has been debunked. But I think that it is disingenuous to say that because Jewish direct participation in the slave trade was low, that makes it okay. There were not a lot of Jewish abolitionists that were fighting to abolish slavery. Lastly, Islam's participation in, Africans, in the African slave trade is well documented and well known. The Arabs were some of the, the, the first and the most brutal of the African slave traders, and they justified it because the Africans were not Muslim. So from my perspective and in line with my discussion uh, before this on systematic en enemy analysis, analysis, I came to the conclusion that all religions have had a negative impact, a net negative impact on Africans as it relates to slavery. I think it is time for us to rethink our devotion to religious institutions that were responsible for and supported the kidnapping, torture, rape, and murder, and ultimate enslavement of our ancestors. From my peace of mind and, and, and point of view, it is time for us to look at this for what it is and start to make choices on what we believe and what we do based upon systematic enemy analysis, critical thinking, and rational thought. All right, that's it for this week's episode of, uh, or, or segment rather, of Minute Bible Study with Atheist Mike. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll close out the podcast. All right, welcome back. Um, unfortunately, I'm still going to be a little over the targeted time this week, but I think not as bad as last week, uh, though this closing segment is going to be a little bit longer than typical. Um, so as I had mentioned in the intro, I want to close the podcast this week with a tribute to uh, Simone Biles. 
I don't want to talk about her pulling out of the team in individual competition and to- at the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, because I don't feel that diminishes in any way, shape, or form her greatness. No athlete, not even those that were dominant and known as the greatest ever in any sport, has had a perfect outing every, t- every time. But Biles has been so dominant in her sport uh, and uh, is, is just so um, graceful and powerful uh, that I want to acknowledge just how brilliant she is. Though I hate to give it any airtime at all, fucking white racist asshole from Texas, um, and I know that's probably redundant because from Texas and racist asshole is the same thing, uh, is it called uh, Ms. Biles a national disgrace. After everything Mrs. Biles has, or Ms. Biles has done for this ungrateful fucking country, the U.S. does not deserve Simone Biles. Like everything black, they think they own her. And they think it is her responsibility to make America proud. Fuck America. It has not supported uh, Simone Biles or anyone black. And we don't owe this fucking country shit. So I read a story of uh, Simone Biles in the New York Times on Sunday, and I was planning to use uh, it uh, as a basis for today's discussion. Uh, It was written before the events unfolded in Tokyo where uh, Simone Biles pulled out. Uh, and so I feel it still provided some great information, but I decided at the last minute uh, that I want to use, I'm still going to use that, but I want to use another uh, reference as well. So I'm also going to use a reference uh, from an, an article uh, from a website called Achievement.org uh, that was written last month because I think it gives a better overall view of Simone Biles' life and her achievements. So, uh, like I said, I'm still going to use some of the Times article, uh, and here was the first part of that. Uh, it says, quote, in the many months leading up to this summer, Simone Biles couldn't wait for the Olympics, not for them to start, but for them to end. The weight she carried at, as the face of the sport had become a burden, and the wear and tear on her body had become what she called, quote, unreal, end quote. With the pain in her ankles making every excruciating step a reminder of how unforgiving gymnastics can be. Five years ago, Biles did everything her sport and her country asked her to do. Sporting a red and white and blue bow in her hair, she helped the United States women gymnastic team secure its third consecutive team Olympic gold medal, and then won three individual gold medals in the all-around, the vault, the floor exercise. She emerged from those from those games as America's sweetheart. The it, the itchy sash placed on every great American female gymnast. Then only weeks after she ref, she returned from Rio came the revelation that the people responsible for protecting gymnasts and safeguarding the integrity of the sport had failed catastrophically to do either, revealing an entrenched culture of physical and emotional abuse. USA Gymnastics had looked the other way while it, as Lawrence Nasser, a longtime national team doctor, molested hundreds of female athletes, including many of Biles' teammates. And though it took some time for her to realize it, Biles herself. Biles had dedicated herself to gymnastics, suffering or uh, sacrificing a normal life of school, dances, football games, and friends for the grinding pursuit of perfection. 
After bringing gold medals to the U.S. gymnastics um, as that governing body had wanted, she inspired countless girls of color to take up their traditionally white sport and become the and became the face of gymnastics around the world. She also came to believe that her sport didn't care for her at all. She has said that she feels betrayed. That what makes the initial trauma even worse. She said, uh, yet she has managed, or, or that makes the uh, initial trauma even worse. Yet she has managed to set aside those feelings and harness the newfound power of an independent black woman who knows her worth and answers to no one. No longer just a sweetheart, she has joined top black female athletes like Naomi Osaka, Serena, Serena Williams, in flexing her influence in sports and society. Last month, after winning a record seventh national championship, Bowles got a tattoo on her collarbone. It and it's just four words from Maya from a Maya Angelou poem about self confidence and black pride in the face of oppression. The words can be read as her athletic credo as she launches herself into an, uh, an apparatus and an effort to become the first female gymnast in half a century to win back to back titles in the Olympic all around. The tattoo says, quote, and I still rise, end quote. And for me, and that's the end quote of uh, that article, and, I, and for me, I think that says it all. Uh, Simone Biles has triumphed over adversity that would have left most of us in a puddle of tears. Everything about, how, uh, about her shows strength, grace, elegance, and intelligence. She has not given up her blackness as she soared to the pinnacle of her sport, but to the pinnacle, not just to the pinnacle of her sport, but to the pinnacle of what it means to be an athlete. Pound for pound, she is stronger than any athlete ever. And beyond athletics, Mrs. Bile has be, uh, as Ms. Biles has become a source for change. She told people to vote, denounce violence against Asian Americans, remarked that um, uh, electricity and clean water should be more accessible, and said that everyone should be more accepting and not give a damn of, uh, and not give a damn about race, gender, or sexual orientation. During the protest after George Floyd's killing last year, she supported Black Lives Matter, keenly aware that people were looking to hear what she had to say about it. Like many Americans, Simone Biles was incensed by what happened to George Floyd, Amon Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and others and was deflated uh, thinking about how many other murders were not caught on videotape or acknowledged by the public. But when addressing these issues and others on social media, she does so with trepidation. She said, quote, I feel like I realized that, po that power after I came out after the Me Too movement, and that was kind of scary. She's, uh, she said that uh, of her NASA-related announcements, but she said, quote, but it's like, wow, my presence is very big in gymnastics, but also online, just in the world in general. So I have to be a bit careful about what I say, end quote. Now, Simone uh, has really overcome a lot in her life. She was born in Columbus, Ohio. Both of her parents struggled with, struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction. Her birth, birth father abandoned the family, uh, which I'm not sure if he's still alive, but if he is, I'm sure he is sorry that ever happened, uh, which uh, a lot of uh, these uh, derelict fathers are after their, the children they gave up become uh, rich and famous. 
and her mother uh, Shannon was was unable to care for her after the after her father left. Um, uh, uh, she the mother Shannon was unable to care for Simone and her three siblings. After spending time in foster care, which she did have to go through that process, uh, three year old Simone and her youngest sister um, Adria were adopted by Shannon's father. Ron Biles, so her mother's father, uh, Ron Biles, and his second wife, Nellie. Simone's older brother and sister were adopted by Ron Biles' sister. Uh, Ron Biles is an Air Force veteran and former air traffic controller. Nellie is a trained nurse who owned and operated a string of nursing homes in the Houston area. They gave Simone and, and Adria a secure upbringing in Spring, Texas, a suburb of Houston, and the girls have always regarded uh, Ron and Nellie as their mother and father. From the beginning, Simone was an active child, running and jumping wherever she could. Her natural strength and high energy combined with an unusual degree of physical daring. Uh, she described herself as just a very brave child. Um, on a daycare uh, field trip at age six, she was taken to a gym and saw other girls practicing gymnastics. When the coaches saw that six-year-old Simone uh, successfully uh, imitated the feats of girls in their teens, they wrote a note to the family suggesting that the child take regular gymnastic classes. She began training in a program at Bannon's Gymnastics in Houston with coach uh, Amy Borman. The energetic child took to the training quickly and set out uh, the long road to becoming a champion. The exuberance and boundless energy that made Biles a star pupil at Bannon Gymnastics uh, posed a different challenge uh, to her teachers and classmates in public school. At an early age, she received a diagnosis of attention deficit, uh, deficit hyper hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Like most young people with this diagnosis, she was prescribed a stimulant Ritalin. With its use, she was able to focus for longer periods on the tasks before her, whether academic or gymnastic. Nellie Biles was a great help to Simone as well. Uh, sitting down with her at the beginning uh, of each year to write a list of her goals uh, for the next 12 months and to record her progress throughout the year. I think that that regimen uh, facilitated uh, Simone Biles becoming the best of the best and cemented a winning streak that has lasted for the last decade. She gave her all to the sport and created moves that had to be named after her because no one else could even perform them. If she wants to take some time out and to deal with personal challenges, it's nobody's fucking business but hers. She is still the greatest athlete ever. All right, that is it uh, for the closing of this week's podcast of The Rational Black Thought. So I would like to remind you that the intro music was Transcend by KIRK. The outro music that you're about to hear is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and on many other platforms. If it's not on the platform where you typically get your podcast, send a note to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll get it added. If it is possible, subscribe to the podcast on your platform, and if also possible, leave me a five-star review. I'd like to leave you with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without the thunder and lightning. 
They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.